Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I hope that wherever you are, you hear the invitation of God today. This week, we begin a new series entitled Songs of the People, in which we're going to explore the invitation, encouragement, and challenge of the Psalms. The Psalms that we're going to be looking at will be determined by the lectionary, the three-year cycle of readings that many churches around the world continue to follow. Our first Psalm is 149, a hymn with a few surprises along the way, but one that encourages us as the community of faith to praise the Lord in response to the delight He shows us and the purpose He gives us. Our reading today is from Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of His faithful people. Let Israel rejoice in their Maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their King. Let them praise His name with dancing and make music to Him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in His people. He crowns the humble with victory. Let his faithful people rejoice in his honour and sing joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his faithful people. Praise the Lord. Well, I'm really excited about this new sermon series that we're beginning today entitled Songs of the People, a series in the book of Psalms. And before I explain a little bit about that, just let me remind you about the opportunity to be a part of this message by asking questions through Slido. If you're new and never done this before, just snap the QR code or use that link. You can ask questions during the sermon that are then answered in our podcast that comes out on Wednesdays. But the reason I'm excited about this new series is a little bit different. I'm looking forward to the opportunity that we have to preach through the Psalms. Uh, But the Psalms that we've selected have been selected for us because for this period of time, we're going to be following the lectionary. The lectionary might be familiar to you if you came from an Anglican or a Uniting Church background, perhaps, but for some of you, that might be a completely new term. Essentially, the lectionary is a series, a three-year cycle of readings that are established for every Sunday in the church calendar. The church calendar follows the events of Jesus, uh, the season of Advent, which leads to Christmas, that leads into Epiphany, that leads to Lent, that leads to Easter, that leads to Pentecost, and, and so on. Uh, And the church calendar is a wonderful reminder that our lives do not revolve around financial quarters or school terms or public holidays, but revolve around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so the lectionary readings over this three-year cycle have a reading from the epistles and a reading from the gospels and a reading from the Psalms, which we have chosen to follow, uh, and a reading from the rest of the Old Testament. So over a three-year period, you'd actually go through a fair chunk of scripture. So that's why we've chosen a somewhat random selection of Psalms. But I'm also looking forward to preaching this series because of the unique challenges that Psalms presents uh, to preachers and to congregations. The, The beauty of poetry is so often found apart from analysis. 
Uh, there's something about poetry that speaks to us in the turn of phrase or the use of metaphor, some sort of uh, expression that captures a shared world of imagination or experience. The beauty lies in the poetry itself, not in the analysis. And by taking a poem apart and looking at its composite parts, it's kind of like taking a watch apart. Uh, it's no longer able to do what it was designed to do, which is to tell time. But it's when we find out what makes a poem tick, the metaphors and the turns of phrases and the structures, that actually broadens our ability to appreciate poetry as a whole. And so I'm kind of looking forward to the opportunity to try to maintain the beauty of this poetry uh, and kind of show you and broaden your um, understanding and recognition of mar what marks it as beautiful without ruining the poetry itself. So with that introduction, turn with me to Psalm 149. Psalm 149 is the fourth of five psalms that conclude the Psalter, uh, another title for the entire book. And it is the fourth of five psalms that begins with praise the Lord or hallelujah. Hallelujah is a praise and Yah is the short form for Yahweh, the personal name of God. Praise the Lord. And more specifically, biblical scholars count this as a hymn. Uh, as, a, as distinct from, say, a psalm of lament, there are certain characteristics and features of a hymn that set it apart. And there are about 35 hymns in the book of Psalms. The defining characteristic of a hymn is that it focuses on what God is like, on what God has done, and on what God characteristically does, as James Mays puts it in his commentary. What God is like, what God has done, and what God characteristically does. The focus of a hymn is solidly on the activity and character of God. And the structure of a hymn is remarkably simple. There are essentially two parts to it. There is the call to praise. So praise the Lord, join me in praising the Lord. And then there is a reason given for that praise. So if you want kind of a, a hymn in its shortest possible form, it's this. Give thanks to the Lord, that's the invitation, for he is good and his love endures forever. The call to praise the Lord is followed by the reason. And that's largely what we find in Psalm 149. It opens as we would expect then with praise the Lord. But this praise is actually a, a present tense expression of praise. Because the people are to sing to the Lord a new song. And that phrase, a new song, is not actually used all that frequently in Scripture. It is usually designated to indicate a, a new expression of praise because God has done something new. They're not to sing an old song, even though there's wonderful truths in old songs. Not, to, not, to, not the least of which is the familiarity of being able to belt out a song that you, you know by heart. A new song is a song that's captured uh, the mood and the moment in a particularly powerful way. It's the song that you have on repeat on Spotify right now. The song that you're listening to over and over and over and over again because it just speaks so powerfully into your situation. Now, we're not told precisely what this new thing is that God has done that has excited this call for a new song. But we are given, I think, a fairly important clue in the titles that the psalmist chooses to describe God. Now, there are, of course, 
dozens of titles for God in Scripture uh, and many uh, analogies and illustrations and comparisons and metaphors. And so it's striking that the author has selected two in particular, that they are to rejoice in their maker and they are to be glad in their king. And here's another feature of Hebrew poetry that's worth being aware of. While English poetry is often marked by kind of the the rhythm and by rhyme, Hebrew poetry is marked by parallelism. In other words, the two lines of each of these little doublets are meant to inform one another, that they build on each other in particular ways. And so there's an invitation for us to kind of consider what maker and king have to do with each other, how they inform one another. Now, now the term maker, I think, is is quite... um, significant. It's more specific than creator. So in Psalm 148, part of uh, the call to praise is the call to praise to all creation. It focuses on the work of God as creator. But the idea of God as their maker, the maker of the people, is a different kind of image, isn't it? It speaks of more personal involvement, of personal investment, of of shaping and crafting and building and and, and being involved in the creation of the people. And therefore, as a term, it actually, uh, as itself, packs into it the entire history of Israel to reflect on who we have been created to be, to reflect on what has happened to make us who we are, invites the people to think about all the promises and all the activities of God, all the events of the past that have shaped them to be who they are at that point in time. It's a, it's a big title. It speaks of the purpose that God had in forming and shaping them. And that then shapes the way we think about the description of God as king. Because God has become their king, not because he's conquered them. He hasn't expanded his territory or exerted his might. They're not to praise him as their king because if they don't, he's going to raise taxes. No, he is their king because he made them. He is personally invested in them. He wants them to achieve the plans and purposes that he has for them. And he rules over them with a benevolence and a grace and a kindness that they should submit to. Now, this is all still part of the invitation to praise. They're to praise the Lord. They're to sing a new song. They're to rejoice in him as their maker and as their king. In verse 3, the psalmist says how they should do this. They should dance and make music to him with timbrel and harp. And then finally in verse 4, we have the why we are called to praise. So far, it's just been the call to praise, the invitation to praise, the, the kind of the, 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 the invitation to all the faithful to praise the Lord. But verse 4 tells us why. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. And again, there's some, uh, some valuable insights to reflect on in the parallelism between those two lines. The, the Lord delights in his people as, as an image is one that speaks of a king bestowing gifts upon people who have done something for him, who have done some sort of amazing um, act. They've won a battle. They have saved the, the crown. They've done something extraordinary in service to the king. We have an example of that in, in the book of Esther, where King Ahasuerus asks Haman, what should be done for the one that the king delights in? Now, Haman thinks that it's him, and so his answer is a little bit tainted, and it's quite ironic what he then ends up having to do. But the, um, the act-
actions on behalf of the one the king delights in are fairly extraordinary. The one the king delights in is to be dressed in one of the king's own robes, identifying him closely with the king. He's to be placed on one of the king's own horses, again, associating him very strongly with the king. And then a leading prince of the nation is to lead that horse through the streets. And as a royal parade, it would have been more than one bloke leading one horse with one guy on it. There would have been soldiers, there would have been trumpeters, there would have been signs, there would have been something to indicate this is a royal procession. And when the people gathered, the one who was leading the horse was to give them the explanation, to say this is what the king does to the one that he delights in. This is the image that that the Lord delights in his people. He bestows gifts on them that associate them strongly with him. But the parallel is really interesting. Because it says that he crowns the humble with victory. The people of God have not served the crown in some extraordinary way. They haven't completed some outrageously impossible task that the king is now delighted in. No, he chooses to delight in them because they are humble. In Psalm 147, verse 6, we're told that he sustains the humble. And in verse 11 of that same psalm, we're told that he delights in those who fear him, who have placed their trust in his unfailing love. God delights in his people not because they've done something amazing, but because they are humble and because he has chosen to do so. It's been a couple of weeks since I've used a hockey illustration, so so I thought I should use another one just in case you thought I was sick or something wasn't quite right. A number of years ago, um, Alex Ovechkin, the captain of the Washington Capitals and and a superstar in the league, uh, hosted a charity skate. Uh, He brought together families and children who had disabilities. Uh, And they were skating together on the practice facility, and he was amongst them all. And in the midst of it all, young Anna, who was uh, 10 at the time, uh, has Down syndrome. She basically, in a conversation with Alex Ovechkin, asked him out on a date. And he agreed. And so a few weeks later, uh, when they were back in the, when the team was back in town, uh, he invited Anne and her family back to the arena. He gave her a tour through the whole facility, holding her hand as they wandered through the, the halls of the facility, uh, introducing her to the coaching and the training staff, introducing her to the players, taking her into the, the locker room itself. They had great seats for the game. And then afterwards, they went out on a date. And they ate sushi together. Uh, and, and this became a feel-good story in the National Hockey League. And it is kind of nice, isn't it? But it occurred to me that it, it actually demonstrates this kind of honoring. Because for young Anne, who no doubt, despite all of our best attempts to uh, create uh, the, the structures and systems to enable those with disadvantages to experience a full life, I can imagine that she still experiences significant uh, disadvantages, that she still has significant challenges. I can imagine that while we are perhaps a little bit more aware of those who experience disadvantage today, I can imagine that she has nonetheless been teased, perhaps bullied, mistreated because of her disadvantage. And here's the thing. None of that changed because she had lunch or dinner with Alex Ovechkin. None of that changed. Her disadvantage remains. Uh, the, uh, the, The challenges that she faces as a young woman will remain before her. 
But in this moment, when she was chosen, when she was the one who had time with this superstar, with this really well-known uh, identity, with this, with this hero of hers, how people related to her changed. She was no longer just this young girl who experienced some disadvantages in her life. No, she was Alex Ovechkin's girlfriend for the night. And that would have changed the way people saw her and addressed her and experienced her. I imagine her going to school the next day with her Alex Ovechkin jersey that he had given to her. And I can imagine that she would, if she had been teased, it only would have been the kind of teasing that she would have loved. Alex and Anne sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. It would have been transformative for her experience with others. This is what the honor of God does for his people. It doesn't change their humility. It doesn't change their lowliness. It changes instead the way people are meant to see them and engage and react to them. But the author is not done, of course. And here in verse five and six, he shifts. He does something unexpected. Um, my daughters have all done art, as you can imagine, and so I have learned about the appropriation of artwork uh, from watching their assessments over the years. And the appropriation of uh, artwork is when you take a well-known piece of art and you slightly change it or change its context or modify it in some way so that it's still identifiable as the same piece of art, but it has a different meaning. Uh, and understanding the new meaning is built on the awareness of the original. And the author here appropriates, I think, two different things. First of all, he appropriates the hymn genre. Right, so we've already, I've already explained that the hymn is fairly straightforward. It focuses on the activity of God and has two parts. Praise the Lord and why. We've had the call to praise. We've had the why. It's been solidly focused on God. And all of a sudden, the psalm shifts. It, it no longer sounds quite like a hymn and it draws our eye. Because listen to what the author says in verse 6. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations, punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his faithful people. And there's two pretty kind of eye-catching things in that, isn't there? I mean, first of all, the focus seems to have shifted to the people rather than to God. That's strange. And secondly, there's this juxtaposition of praise and violence. The, the people are described as the executioners and the hangmen of the, uh, the, the, the decrees of the heavenly court. Uh, this sounds like holy war, doesn't it? Makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable, probably. But I actually believe that the author is appropriating not only the hymn form, but also another well-known psalm. If you have your Bibles with you, you might want to turn to Psalm number 2. Uh, scholars uh, have identified a number of uh, types of, of psalms, like hymns and whatnot, but they've also uh, done some thinking around the arrangement of the psalms in the Psalter. And the consensus is that some thought went into what the first psalm was, and what the second psalm was, and what the last two psalms were at the very least. And, and while Psalm 1 and Psalm 150 are quite different, and the journey between them requires a different imaginative journey, Psalm 2 and Psalm 149 are actually quite similar. So just listen to Psalm 2 and, and, and hear the parallels between Psalm 2 and Psalm 149. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his anger. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Did you hear the parallels? There's a couple of places in that psalm where the rule of God is represented by his king. And the call is to the surrounding nations to recognize that when they're talking about throwing off the reign of an earthly king, they're not just throwing off the reign of an earthly king, but of the ultimate king, the Lord himself. And they are called to reconsider how they see that king. And that king is given the same task as in Psalm 149, to establish the reign and rule of God on the earth. It talks about shackles and it talks about dashing them to, like, to, to pieces like pottery. It uses the same language of warfare to describe the establishment of the reign and rule of God. And now I think we get, begin to get a little bit of a hint about what the author is doing. Because ultimately he is calling for a shift of focus from the king to the community of faith. And the reason for this shift may actually be the reason why this is a new song. You see, the book of Psalms as a whole was compiled after the exile. They may have been written in various times and places much earlier, but they were compiled together and brought together as a, as a collection in the exile. A period of time in the 6th century BC when the people of Israel had experienced the shattering loss of independence. When they had been conquered by the Babylonians, removed from their land, the city of God burnt to the ground. The temple of God desecrated and burnt to the ground. They were without the signs of the promise, without king, without land, without city. And in this shattering event, they needed to explain what had happened. And the answer of faith was this, that these actions were not failed foreign policy or poor military strategy, but were actually the judgments of God on his people for their unfaithfulness, for their disloyalty to him for centuries. But the answer of faith was not just that this was judgment, but that it was judgment that was not final, but was meant to be restorative. That ultimately this was to shake the people out of their unfaithfulness, to turn them back to him finally and fully in order that, that they might fulfill the plans and purposes of God. For the plans and purposes of God, said the prophets, were still in play. Psalm 149, at the end of this whole work, suggests that the plans and purposes of God to establish his reign and rule are still at play but that the one who will bring those to pass is no longer just the king, but the entire community of faith. The humble, lowly community of faith. 
In the post-exilic period, their humility was actually their primary mark. They had no military might. They had no military power. They had no uh, economic power or influence. They were a province of the Persian Empire for centuries. How is a group of humble people like that ever going to establish the reign and rule of God? It's only if God is involved. And so we see that the author by drawing our attention to the people of faith, has not actually shifted focus away from God at all. He has instead demonstrated for us that he is still at work in their midst. We're going to bring it into the New Testament. Jesus becomes the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2, doesn't he? The established king, the anointed one, the Messiah of God, through whom his reign and rule will be established. And we become the community of faith in Psalm 149, a task to, to praise the Lord because his delight and honor rests on us as we seek him, even in our humble condition. And we are to be engaged in bringing about the kingdom of God because we are shaped by the same and made by our King Jesus. If you want a New Testament example of this, you might find it in Galatians, sorry, in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul says this, that God's intent was that now, through the church, and for Paul, the church was a small group of house churches. They had hardly any influence, hardly any power, hardly any significance, but it was God's intent that through the church, that small, humble, lowly group of followers was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we are assigned as the community of faith in Israel was assigned and as the king was assigned of God's eternal plans and purposes. And that despite our humility, despite our lowliness, despite our, our lack of power and influence, God will bring it about. Just like the people of Israel, we gain our identity and our purpose from God and from God alone. This is not a psalm that calls us to do something. It calls us to reimagine the way we see the world. It calls us to recognize that we are the ones in whom God delights if we seek after him. That it doesn't depend on how great we uh, might, uh, what great things we might do. It depends on God delighting in those who seek Him. I don't know how long the afterglow lasted for young Anne. I don't know how long it took before her classmates began to see her again just as Anne rather than as Anne, the one who had gone out with Alex. But how much more should the afterglow exist for us? Because the delight of the Lord rests on us day by day by day. He has made us and rules over us. He is the one whose plans and purposes we are invited to participate in. And therefore, the one thing that we are called to do is to praise the Lord. So let me read this to you one more time. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. 
his praise in the assembly of his faithful people. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. Let his faithful people rejoice in this honor. Sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his faithful people. Praise the Lord. This week, may you sleep, work, and play in the afterglow of the Lord's delight in each of us. Let us continue to seek the Lord, to fear Him, and to rejoice that, in our humility, we are His people. Praise the Lord. We hope you join us again soon, and we'd love for you to join us for church at gbconline.org.au at our regular service times of 8.30, 10.30, and 6 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. You can also follow us on Facebook or visit our website at gamiabaptist.org.au. Until next time, God bless. God bless.